Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. And if uh, you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we turn once more to 2 Peter chapter 3. Concluding our study of this letter with a recap, I'll just read the last three, excuse me, the last two verses that we'll be studying this evening as uh, he does cover the two main emphases of his letter to conclude. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray once more, please. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word that is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And in meditating upon it day and night, we Know that that prosperity and success that pleases you is at hand. We pray that you would once again bless us, therefore, as we meditate in this portion of your word and teach us your holy will for Christ's sake. Amen. There's a nice French proverb that says a good meal ought to begin with hunger. A good meal ought to begin with hunger. Or as my wife says, hunger is the best sauce. In the letter that we've been studying for the last several months, Peter has given us such a hunger, uh, a hunger to grow in grace, a hunger to know the Lord, to press on with him. A.W. Tozer wrote pointedly, I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to the present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of a lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Well, Peter has certainly encouraged us to shake off complacency. What, what alarming words he used. Of course, he began the letter with a very positive approach, and I hope you appreciate just how slowly I went through some of those positive statements as he encouraged us to give all diligence, to add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, giving diligence to advance our Christian lives. And we who are God's people desire to be rooted and built up in Christ and complete in him. So it was a delightful study. Peter has a passion for the growth and maturity of God's people. And so he described the life of godliness to us in chapter 1 in the most beautiful terms. Adding these things, we will, be, we will find an entrance supplied to us abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, with such exceeding great and precious promises, he rounded out that chapter. But starting in chapter 2, Peter described his pressing concern that false teachers already had come into the church and were leading many astray. It's not enough just for us to begin well. Every Christian, he points out, must aim at finishing well, at going on with the Lord. Peter warns us that steadfastness, perseverance, must continue among us. One lesson from Jesus' parable of the sower is that it is pretty easy to begin well, 
the seed, even on rocky ground, will spring up quickly. A seed in thorny ground will make a good start for a while until being choked out, but neither of them will come to anything, only the seed on good soil that bears fruit with perseverance will be blessed in the end. And likewise, Jesus describes how the evil pleasures and false prophets of this age will lead many astray, but he who endures to the end, he says, shall be saved. And Hebrews emphasizes our need to run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. And so, with really quite alarming words, Peter warned us in chapter 2, in the first half of chapter 3, of the dangers that we must press through, that we must continue our run with Christ until the very end. It was during the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City that uh, John Stephen Akwari placed last in the Olympic marathon, and yet major sports magazines called him one of the top two international Olympians of the year. How did he get that? By placing last, you ask? Well, although he lost the race, Mr. Aquari won the admiration of untold thousands. In the uh, middle of the race, he started suffering from leg cramps. Mexico City has much higher elevation than his home country. Uh, And then he collided with another runner and fell, and he both dislocated and badly cut his knee, and he injured his shoulder. And he got up and continued to run, blood running down his leg, wounded and in pain. He continued and continued. And um, by the time he finally made it back to the arena where the end was, most spectators had left where the finish line was. But those who remained noticed some flashing lights on a vehicle escorting a lone runner. And they cheered as the Tanzanian hobbled along the track in his own victory lap and crossed the finish line more than an hour after the winner. Afterward, he was interviewed about why, why he kept on running when he had such injuries. He said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Well, uh, he, he won the admiration of many by his perseverance. Similarly, Peter finishes his letter to the church, summarizing his concerns. Beware, lest you be lest you fall from your steadfastness. Beware, lest you be led away by the error of the wicked, warning them not to be corrupted by that toxic teaching or turned aside, but to go on, to press on in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends with a doxology. So these are the three things we'll be considering tonight. Three G's, guarding, growing, and glorifying, right from the passage Guarding, growing, and glorifying. Not glowing, growing. Uh, First G, guarding. Guard yourself from false teaching. Guarding yourself from false teaching. Those of you who have gardens know that it's not enough for water and sunlight and even a little fertilizer to help make your plants grow. A little after you put your plants in this spring, something else will happen, and you know what it is. You'll come back, and there's all these weeds. Who planted those there? A garden must be weeded as well, and this is what Peter has been doing for more than half of his letter now, pulling up noxious weeds that would choke the growth 
of the Christian. You therefore, beloved, verse 17, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Well, we want our children to grow, and we don't say, now children, I want you to grow four inches this year, and I'll be very disappointed if you do not. No, we don't do that. We focus on health. We feed them a well-balanced diet, and we try to keep away most harmful things from them. (laughs) When they get regular checkups and brush their teeth and do other things to be healthy, we expect that naturally they will grow to whatever God has appointed their height to be. Well, when a child is healthy, he grows. And the same thing is true for children of God. Peter has written some of the strongest warnings in the Bible to render his readers immune to the appeal of lies. He calls them destructive heresies. He wants them to become healthy, well-grounded, go on to maturity, being aware of the ever-present danger that not everything being taught in the church is good for you spiritually. Here in verse 17, he uses the emphatic you in order to make a contrast to the false teachers. You know how these false teachers operate. I'm telling you beforehand. So forewarned is forearmed. We we get the word prognosis, by the way, from that Greek word translated beforehand. I'm not going to make too much of that, but you know how a prognosis does get you ready so that some danger doesn't catch you unaware, right? Your doctor says to you, now, David, you need to lose some weight or you're going to be getting diabetes. Well, he's telling me in advance so I can take some corrective action and prevent the onset from disease. Well, if you like, Peter's prognosis is that the church is getting sick. Many are being led astray by untaught and unstable men, lawless men who twist the Bible to justify their immoral lives. So reminding them of the Lord's warning, uh, he recalls the various ways in which God had judged in the past and what he will again. Satan attacks with lies, subtlety. He infiltrates the church. False teachers creep in, and these creeps say things that sound biblical, but they deceptively lead God's people astray. And so he warns the church about this, as we've seen. Some things in the scripture he admits are hard to understand, but people are twisting those words even to deny the Lord's coming again in judgment and leading people into greater morality. Well, the Bible has some hard teachings that confront the popular ideas of every culture, and Peter has put those hard teachings right on the bottom shelf. He says, you know, there is the problem of sin and being hopelessly lost and the judgment to come and being unable to do anything apart from the grace of God. We look to him alone for salvation. Uh, It's not popular today to teach that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but... uh, This is the truth that sets men free. And so, though some deny or twist these truths, we must beware and go on with the Lord. Well, it's important, especially, I think, in our current climate. Uh, Our culture today does not prize age, maturity. Uh, These things are not... uh, very common, in fact, now, and maturity anyway, common in our society. Adolescence seems to stretch into people's 20s and 30s or beyond. 
maturity is simply not prized as it once was, and so our American cultural plague of immaturity has, of course, now made it into the church. Errol Hulse wrote, In our generation, we have increasingly suffered from a spiritual lethargy and powerlessness. There's a high percentage of weak and lukewarm Christians in Western churches who evidence little interest in growing in grace and knowledge. The church may be bustling with activity and at the same time be infiltrated and permeated with the world's thinking and doing. It's sometimes the case that bright forms of worship camouflage a dead spiritual condition. End quote. Well, Peter said, teachers will secretly bring in, that is from the world, destructive heresies. And that is why we must both beware and grow up, mature in our thinking, be men, as it says elsewhere. All healthy churches are concerned not only with being warned, but positively with growth, not just in numbers, but in growing members. You can't be a holy Christian uh, and be a baby Christian for a lifetime. The growth is not optional for disciples. Holy Christians are growing Christians, and so we must not only, point one, guard ourselves from false teaching, we must, however, point two, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Uh, just right from verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of, interestingly, the third time he calls him in this book, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that's an intentional uh, emphasis there. John Owen writes, a mind filled with the love of Christ as crucified will be changed into his image and likeness. Growth comes from knowing and revering our awesome Savior, our Lord and Savior. Just as what Peter writes to the Corinthians, right, that that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we have this strong negative negative emphasis, but the, the positive, again, finishing it out. Christians should grow. That is, that we should become closer to Christ and better Christians through the course of our lives, that we might be able to see some progress. You see progress in your lives? We think about Paul writing uh, to the Ephesians, you know, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all things into him who is the head. Elsewhere, a similar statement to the Colossians, that we are to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. It was in one of his letters that John Newton contrasted a new believer with a mature Christian. And I found this was really helpful because, you know, we look back on our time, some of us as new Christians, and we say, oh, I wish we could recapture some of those things in the past. There was a, there was a fervor, a zeal, an enthusiasm that is characteristic of a new spiritual life and wonderful. Now, the old believer does tend to look back on the early life and and miss that sense of excitement and new discovery. But, Newton points out, the new Christian, for all those wonderful things, is also usually less stable, often unwise. 
usually proud in ways in which he or she is not able to, protect, to detect yet. The older believer being knocked around a little more is humbler, who knows from his own failures, from long experience, to be more cautious and wiser regarding himself. His feelings may not be as warm, but his judgment is more solid. He knows more. He knows what he doesn't know more. He's uh, conscious of weakness in a way that young believers don't seem to be. They seem to be more cocksure because they have not yet been so disappointed in every humbling way that Christians must eventually be. A mature believer is slower to judge others, less of a mind to think that he knows what God will do in answer to our prayers. He's more eager to get to heaven because he has suffered much disappointment in this life, in this world, and just wants to be with the Lord. In other words, there's a great difference between a young believer and an old believer. The the practiced, mature Christian does lack some of those brighter things from earlier days, it's true, but he does advance in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. At least he ought to. Now, the fact is, as the Bible makes painfully clear, it's not always the case that God's people grow in grace and knowledge over the course of a lifetime. The Bible acknowledges that there are some that are true believers that seem to be going at the end in the opposite direction sometimes even. You think of Solomon, who certainly finished his life at a lower level of spiritual accomplishment than he was in younger days. You think of Gideon or Asa or Hezekiah, men who started well, but who finished less well, sometimes who finished miserably. The Lord has similar concerns as he writes letters to the churches of Asia, where its members had started well, but they left their first love, or, or worse. He says, you need to recognize you're not going in the right direction. Paul writes to the Corinthians about some ministers who simply are not laboring as they should, and at their end, their work will be burned up, though they themselves will be saved, so as through fire. They, they need to recognize that and turn to the right course. So much of what the Bible says about our life together, our use of spiritual gifts, prayer, study of the Word, practice of faith, even the sufferings that God has appointed for us or the failures that darken our lives, all of this, I say, is largely directed to this goal, that we should press on in the grace and knowledge of Christ and that we need to make advance as we give ourselves to these things. And so, before I go on, I'd like to make a few practical comments. The Bible reminds us that growth depends on life. If you're not growing, this is just as true spiritually as it is physically. You have to be born physically before you can grow. And the Bible teaches us that the entire world is born spiritually dead. Being religious or moral will get you nowhere. Jesus told the Nicodemus, the Pharisee Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see, you can't enter the kingdom of God. God must give life. And without life, religion becomes moralism. Genuine Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. If you need growth, you must get life. There's only one place you can get it. Do you know where that is? Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus, and no man comes to the Father but by me. 
Apply to Jesus, as old Dr. Kravadam said, and you'll get life. Growth prevents atrophy as well. Growth prevents atrophy. If you uh, don't work your muscles, they'll atrophy. My son broke his hand, and uh, he'll be getting a cast in a couple of days in which he won't be able to move his third metacarpal anyway uh, until uh, six weeks are over. And they make sure to take it off promptly at six weeks because, you know, if you don't use those muscles, they're going to weaken and eventually wither. Well, spiritually speaking, we must be getting stronger and using those muscles lest we slip into weakness or withering. That's atrophy. Or to change the picture, uh, being a Christian is like riding a bike. If you're not moving forward, you're going to fall off. So verse 18 begins with a contrast. But, it says, you, you grow in grace by, first, refusing to be carried away by the errors of the sort of men that have been troubling the church. Uh, these believers were to keep themselves under faithful teaching in the, the rule of godly men. Atrophy will be staved off by growth. Growth will prevent atrophy. So uh, by by uh, turning to the grace and knowledge of Christ, we will uh, avoid this deadly infection. I'll also point out that growth is a process. Growth is a process. Uh, you can't get a holy zapping and become mature. It's just not the way it works. You know, we Americans, we love the publishers, clearinghouse, sweepstakes, right? Because, why? Because you can get rich without having to work hard or be disciplined or live within your means or save money. It's just a check in the mail one day. And we think, wow, well, what a great way to go. Well, God's approach to the growth in godliness is, is not a check in the mail one day. It's not a holy zapping. Nobody moves from being a babe in Christ to full maturity in a day or a week or even in a few years. It takes time and experience. You have to learn to walk with the Lord. And you've got to crawl before you walk. And once you get the hang of walking, you still fall down a lot. Well, spiritual growth is just the same. Although there are tough lessons that you can only learn by failure and trial and error, sometimes falling flat on your face, and getting up and walking with him again, looking unto Jesus. Uh, sometimes you think you get overconfident, and you think, well, I've learned the lesson now, and I'm strong, and you fail again, and you realize I'm just neglecting the Lord and depending upon this, the arm of strength. I, I, I need to go through this process until I know who I am and who the Lord is and where I am safe. Uh, the Lord has called you to a process, a humbling process of growth, but one that will bring you safely to heaven. We find that growth in grace is for the humble. In fact, that's almost a quote from 1 Peter 5. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Growing involves humility. It involves a greater understanding, first, of God's holiness and justice and sovereignty, which makes us more aware of, of our own rebellion, selfishness, and pride. And we learn more of our unworthiness, and more and more of his great love to the undeserving and the favor that he has richly given us in Christ that has drawn us to him again. We, therefore, must decrease, but Christ must increase if we are to grow. Um, I've, I've learned more, I'm sure, from 
my humbling stumbles than from whatever spiritual successes I've had, I don't know. Um, these often seem to be the most important lessons of all. I learn how poorly I do when I'm not consciously and actively depending on the Lord and looking to Him. And I've learned that my confidence in myself is a foolish illusion. I've learned the hard way that I can't trust myself even at the best moments of my life. But I don't need to despair either in the worst, for the Lord is still with me. These lessons and many more like them are the process of grace to the humble. And these sanctifying experiences do draw out many lessons. I'll also point out that uh, growth requires knowledge. Growth requires knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. In Peter's day, as he pointed out at length, there was a great problem with immorality in the church. There was rotten, rotten fruit in the church. The rotten fruit was the result of a rotten root. People had corrupted the faith. And God's people needed to press on in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're never safer from error than we, when we are getting stronger in the truth we believe. Always forward, in the Word, in prayer, in love for God, in Christian hope. Always forward. If you like, it's the Christian athlete who's always exercising his face, whom the devil, faith of the devil can't catch. Or, to change the metaphor better here, it's perhaps the Christian scholar always in Christ's library, whom the devil is not able to trick, even with his more subtle temptations and lies. Knowledge about Christ will keep you from many errors, but of course Christ is not merely a subject to be studied. He is a person to be known, and we must be growing to know him personally, spending time with him, and in his word, and in prayer. And of course, reflecting upon all that he's taught, spiritual food to nourish our knowledge and life in Christ. So Peter said in his first letter, as babes crave that pure spiritual milk that you need to grow, namely the Word of God, and there is so much to be learned. I've been a, uh, a teacher and therefore a professional student of the Bible now for, what, 20 years? And I'm still every week learning new things wonderful things, exciting new things from my study of the Word of God. There is so much to be learned in God's book to inspire us, to instruct us, to warn us, to give us discernment, to to open up new levels of understanding and the glories of God and all that He's doing to busy the saints, I think, uh, until time is no more. Well, in all these things, Peter closes the letter recalling all that he said by urging us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And point three, reminding us to glorify him. To glorify him, he concludes with a doxology, which is how we'll conclude today. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Do you know what it means to glorify the Lord? It certainly includes praising him, but it is more than that, right? Uh, Psalm 50, whoever offers praise glorifies me. So we we glorify him by praise. But also, whenever we grow to reflect his character, 
as we, for example, love people and do what is good, and when we are wise and right, we glorify the Lord, and when that Holy Spirit fruit appears in our life, and the love and joy and peace and patience and so forth of God are ours, it glorifies him in the earth. It uh, glorifies him, we read, when we are filled with the fruits of righteousness to the praise of his glory, Philippians 1.11. And how we are to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And by, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so it is in this pressing on in the life of faith, we glorify him. We glorify him, Thomas Watson writes, by appreciation as we confess that there is none more wonderful and glorious. That there's, we glorify him by adoration and say that he's worthy of all praise and worship. We glorify him by affection, setting our hearts upon him and delighting in him above all others. And we glorify him by allegiance when we say that there is no service more noble, no cause more worthy, no calling more grand than this. Glorifying and enjoying him, you see, are just two sides of the same coin. And the more enjoyment we can draw from him in that calling that we've received, the more glory we bring to him in our lives. So we conclude, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all those means of grace that you've given to us by which we may grow, all those ways in which you have set the table for a healthy meal for us in your written word, in which you reveal yourself and feed us with the riches of your gospel, for the blessings of prayers answered and meditation and worship and all the other ways that you have uh, ordained to teach us and to have fellowship with us. We thank you for our baptism that speaks truth to us in the Lord's Supper, these tangible expressions of that covenant love and grace that are ours in Jesus. We thank you for this local church, for the community, and for this environment that you've placed here by which we may grow in grace and delight in service. And pray that in all these means of grace and others that are like them, that we would truly grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We pray that you would forgive us for our dullness and slowness of heart, for the way in which we have delighted in other things that have not given us growth. We pray that you would take away our lukewarmness and grant that we might henceforth glorify you, living for your glory, delighting ourselves in the God that we love, the God who alone is worthy, through Jesus Christ our Lord.